All right, we'll go ahead and get started. So um, have a lot of material to cover as usual. Uh, hopefully you get a handout. I think you'll find that um, helpful in tracking along because we're going to cover a lot of things. So maybe at least it'll give you a, a good overview of what I'm trying to do, trying to lead us through here. So let me pray for us. Father, uh, we recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from you. Uh, we thank you for uh, your many mercies uh, over this past week, uh, even this morning, the life and breath that you've given us and um, the opportunity to gather with your people. We pray you strengthen us, uh, give us uh, wisdom, discernment according to your word so that we might know your ways and walk in them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in the middle of a study here on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And we have covered a few things. I'm just going to briefly outline those because we've had two weeks where we haven't had Sunday school. So uh, we've talked about first the person of the Spirit. So who is the Holy Spirit, right? We talked about the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit is God, God the Holy Spirit. Um, we talked about the work of the Spirit. And when we started looking at the work of the Spirit, we've had different sessions on things like the inspiration of Scripture, so one of the, the main things that we see that the Spirit has done is he has inspired the Scripture, right? So that we actually have the words of God in this book, the Bible. Uh, the Holy Spirit gives illumination. He gives understanding into his word. Um, now, so anyone could read it and understand some basic facts, just like reading, you know, a book. But in terms of understanding, oh, this is God's word, you know, and oh, th this is how this applies to me, right? I mean, and this is um, what God wants of his people. And, and really seeing it in an in a illuminated way comes by the spirit. Spiritual things are discerned by the spirit, we're told. Uh, in the old covenant, we saw that his work involved regenerating, in other words, giving new life, spiritual birth, because everyone is dead in sin. He has to give new life to the people of God. So they can actually be the people of God. They can be alive to God, not dead to God, like we naturally are in our sin. Uh, we also saw, though, that in terms of indwelling, living in, you know, in, in a unique empowering way in someone, that was not happening to every saint in the Old Testament. Uh, there, there were certain individuals due to their roles or different things where the spirit would come upon them. He would indwell them, but it was not a permanent indwelling and it was not of every single person who was redeemed in the old covenant. Uh, we talked a little bit, um, if you're kind of wondering why that is, I think one of the big reasons is because in, in the old covenant, Jesus hasn't come, died, made the propitiation in the heavenlies so that the curtain in the temple is torn and therefore God then dwells in all of his people. They are the temple in the new covenant. In the old covenant, that curtain is still there. The temple is still there. That is still very much the place where God's people are experiencing God's presence because the Messiah hasn't come yet. In other words, we're not, we weren't to that point in redemptive history, right? In the new covenant, there's, there's a pretty big difference. It actually is a new covenant. Um, in the new covenant, therefore, we find that, yes, he regenerates. He gives new life, just like he did in the old covenant. We also find, though, that now he permanently indwells every single believer, right? That is what the Spirit does. We are the temple of God, the Holy Spirit. He lives within us. We also started last time we met to talk about spiritual gifts. So Doug spent the whole session really giving us kind of an overview of spiritual gifts, why we have them, why they're important. Uh, in fact, turn to 1 Corinthians 12 real quick, just to look at one verse on that. And then we'll be in uh, 1 Corinthians 14 in a minute. But in 1 Corinthians 12, you see something about these spiritual gifts I'm not going to go through a whole list of, of the spiritual gifts we see. Doug did that last time, and you can find that handout online. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. 
says, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Uh, so it's, we're, we're talking about spiritual gifts. It's a manifestation of the spirit. It's given by this. They are given by the spirit. Um, they, uh, when we talk about the word gifts, it's, it's the word um, often charis, meaning grace is the word that's being used there. So it is, it is a gift. That's what we mean when we say they're gifts. It's grace. That's what the word grace refers to. Um, we also see that in different passages, it talks about them being activities, or uh, it's, it's a Greek word, kind of the word for energy or activity. And so we see that it is something energized by the Spirit. It's actually doing things. Um, and it, we also see it referred to as ministries, kind of like uh, deacons. Um, it's a similar Greek word that we have there that refers to spiritual gifts. But what I want you to see in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 is... Uh, Spiritual gifts are what the Spirit gives, and they're for the common good. And in the context, it's clear what we mean is the building up of the body of, of the church, right, of God's people. So it's very important. When, we, when we, we're going to start talking today, you're going to see our question is, um, does the Spirit still give the gifts of prophecy, tongues, and healings? It's important to re- always remember, because we're going to be defining these. And this really, the crux of the issue really is how do you define those words? How do you define those gifts becomes really the issue. Um, and you'll see more of that in a minute. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, are, are all these gifts given today, how, when, when we define these gifts, they have to be defined in a way that is for the common good, the building up of the church. So if we're going to define a gift like tongues as a personal private prayer language, I think we already have a problem based on the very clear teaching that the spiritual gifts are to build up the body, not you individually. Do you see what I'm saying? So we, I think we have to be clear on what's the purpose of the gifts, and that, that is very clear in Scripture, even if people are saying, well, I have questions about these gifts, right? We have to, we, we, when something's clear, we've got to affirm that's very clear, right? And that's all I'm trying to say. Hope that was clear. All right, definition. Uh, Tom Schreiner says, the gifts of grace, the, so what are spiritual gifts? The gifts of grace granted by the Holy Spirit, which are designated for the edification, that is the building up of the church. Okay, so our question today, are all these gifts still given today? And specifically, I'm referring to those three gifts of prophecy, tongues, and healings, but um, we have two, two different ways of, of answering this question. One is referred to as cessationism. Can you guess what that means to cease, right? Cessationism, the idea is there's a ceasing of some of these gifts. So it's the view, um, let's see, do I, yeah, is the view that the gifts of prophecy, tongues, and healing slash miracles were given only during the apostolic time prior to the completion of the New Testament writings. Um, Continuationism, you can probably guess what that is, right? To continue uh, would mean the view is that those gifts continue in the church today. Those are are really your two views. Um, And then you have people who say, you know, I'm, I'm open but cautious and all that other stuff, right? So different things like that. So but the point is, those are really your two main views. We teach, so this is from the What We Teach document here at Grace Church. So this is, so just to be clear, this document is not something that we require all of our members to affirm. It, in other words, the statement of faith does not get this detailed. The statement of faith is what we say, yes, we believe these things together. These are very central, crucial things that we have to believe together to live life as a church together. Okay? This statement is not in that document uh, this isn't what we teach. That document is more so, if you're becoming a member, you, uh, we want you to understand. So if you go to the membership class, you get this document too, and it's on our website. But you understand what to ex- you're going to expect to hear taught. So it's going to have more details than the, what is required of every member to believe. So I, the reason I'm saying that is you may have a different view than this, and that's okay. You can still be a member. 
Now, don't be divisive and go around saying, well, I know the elders teach this, but let me tell you all the reasons they're, they're wrong and why we need to split off and start our own church and our own Bible study where we're going to speak in tongues. Um, that would be a problem for other reasons, not because you hold that view, right? But because you're becoming divisive over that view. You, you know what the elders teach and you're intentionally going to try to break apart the fellowship over that issue. You can hold that view. That's fine, right? Okay, so um, we teach that sign gifts apostle, prophet, healing, miracles, and tongues, authenticated the ministry and message of the apostles. And then we give you some scripture there. And served in the establishment of the church. So we give you some scripture there. We teach that God continues to demonstrate his miraculous power and ability to heal, but the sign gifts as given to the early church are not in effect today. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And, and really the questions are, you know, are we limiting the Spirit's work by saying these gifts are no longer given? We need to answer that question. Uh, or, so is that the case? Or are we right in line with the idea that, no, it actually was this God's intention that in redemptive history there was a place for those gifts and the place for that, we're past that now so the Spirit doesn't give those gifts. In other words, are we missing out on something and limiting the Spirit when we say this or are we in line with what's actually really the way God designed it to unfold? Right? That's kind of what the question is. Yes. What is the the meaning behind, where did the sign gifts, the word sign, where did it come from? Yeah. Yeah, so Paul, you know, Paul refers to the signs of an apostle being done when he, when he is justifying the fact that he is, in fact, an apostle. Um, and I think Hebrews chapter 2 maybe talks about how, I think we'll see that maybe in a little while, but God's authenticating his message through signs and wonders. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably where that came from. It's a good question. So this question was, where does that sign gifts terminology come from? I don't know if all of you heard that in the back, but okay. Uh, so let's, let's look at closer look at prophecy, tongues and healing and miracles. And then we'll make a brief, um, kind of bigger overview case for cessationism. So let's see what they are. And that will help us begin to answer the question. Do we see these gifts today? Really? That is the issue. What are these gifts? Right? When we get the definition right, I think it's going to be pretty clear what the answer is. Uh, the, but obviously the debate is over the definition. I, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. More so even than just the practice, because I'm not denying that people practice what they call tongues. I'm saying that's not what tongues are. That's what, that's what I'm saying. I think, the I think we're at a definitional difference, right? Okay. So prophecy, 1 Corinthians 14. What is Prophecy. Well, a prophet communicates revelations from God. Um, prophecy is, so I put this on your handout, prophecy is when a person spontaneously receives a revelation from God that is intended to be communicated to other people. Uh, so one, one place we see a, a prophecy being talked about is 1 Corinthians 14. But one thing I'll point out in verses 29 and 30, if you look down there, is uh, prophecy is this spontaneously given thing from God. It says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So I think we do have the idea that this is spontaneously given. So I guess what I'm saying is this is, the, the gift of prophecy is not the same thing as preparing to preach on a text that has already been given and inspired by the Spirit and then explaining that passage. That's preaching. That is, you could say, exhortation. It's things like that. This is revelation from God, right? God, this is revelation from God too, but what I'm saying is, the gift of prophecy is you're receiving spontaneously from God a message. It's not, well, I was meditating on scripture and I understand what the passage means. Does that make sense? There's a difference. Um, 
it's uh, you see that with um, Agabus's prophecy in, in Acts 11. You see it in other places as well. Um, prophecy is, is oftentimes future-oriented in terms of predicting the future. Sometimes, though, it's more of a commanded thing, more so than a prediction. So you can see in Acts chapter 13, you don't have to turn there, but in Acts chapter 13, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and then it lists several individuals gathered, including Barnabas and Saul. And verse 2 says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That's not so much a foretelling of the future type of prophecy, but it is a direct revelation, spontaneous revelation from God through the Holy Spirit specifically, that these two are the ones you're to set apart to go on this mission. Okay? So that's prophecy happening in the book of Acts. Okay, so we see that definition. Continuous, continuationist definition of New Testament prophecy uh, differs. Um, So let me point out one thing here. I think the definition I just gave you is what you see in the Old Testament. I don't think anyone is questioning that that's the definition. I mean, they may use different words, but that that's basically what we mean when we say prophecy or prophet in the Old Testament. The difference becomes the continuationist wants to give a different definition from the old covenant version of prophecy for the new covenant version of prophecy. So Wayne Grudem, who would be a continuationist, um, writes, words, um, the words prophet and prophecy were used of ordinary Christians who spoke not with absolute divine authority, but simply to report something that God had laid on their hearts or brought to their minds. So you can see where this goes is, the, the, the argument becomes, so prophecy is not inerrant in the new covenant. So if someone has the gift of prophecy, they're just speaking something the Lord has laid on their hearts, and sometimes they're going to get it right, and sometimes they're not. And I don't think, to be fair, I don't think their argument is that God is making an error in what he's saying or revealing or whatever. I think it's that, well, because we're fallible, we make mistakes in that. But, I mean, already you have a problem because the Old Testament prophets were fallible too. And yet we're not saying that when they prophesied, they got it wrong ever, right? In fact, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Turn to Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22. Chapter what? Uh, Deuteronomy 18. Um, I should have told you this earlier, but we may come back to 1 Corinthians 14, but if you, if you already lost it, you'll get back there eventually, I'm sure. So, Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22. So we've been talking about prophecy, things like that, and this is what the Lord says, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, so in other words, I have not spontaneously given him this message, um, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? In other words, how do we know if it's a false prophecy or not? Right? How do we know if it's a false prophet or not? What's the answer? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. In other words, he's a false prophet if what he says doesn't come to pass or doesn't line up with what God ends up commanding, right? So, my, so in the Old Covenant, it's pretty clear, right? False prophet, if you get it wrong, you're a false prophet. It's not like if you get it right 80% of the time. Because what happens? In Deuteronomy 18, if you get it wrong, you're executed. Right? I mean, that's what it says. Prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. But look back up in verse 20. That same prophet shall die. Well, what prophet? Back up in verse 20. 
the prophet who presumes, presumptuously. It's the same thing, right? Presumptuous speaking, which means it's not the word of the Lord, which is proven by the fact that it does not come to pass. Don't be afraid of him. In fact, execute him, right? He can say, well, listen, I'm a prophet. Don't execute me. And you say, we're not afraid of you because you gave us a false prophecy. You're not a, you're a false prophet, right? First Samuel chapter three, don't turn there. First Samuel chapter three, verse 19 and 20. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. How did they know he was a prophet of the Lord? None of his words fell to the ground. In other words, they all were sustained. They were all shown to be accurate and true when he prophesied. Okay. Um, now, uh, our, I'm going to go real quick through these um, but I think it is helpful, I just want to be fair and point out, uh, what are the continuationist arguments for thinking that prophecy in the New Testament differs? I think it's pretty clear in the Old Covenant, prophecy is 100% accurate. The cessationist has to say that that's not the case in the New Covenant, because in experience, their prophets get it wrong. So they have to say that. They're, they're pushed into that position. And I, I'm, not, I'm not putting words in their mouth. I read to you Wayne Grudem. He does say that. And he's, I mean, he's a pretty well-known theologian, right? Okay, so, so th that's the position they end up in. But uh, why did they say that? Well, here's a couple reasons they give. This is, I got these from Grudem. 1 Corinthians 14.29 says prophets are to be judged by prophets, and so they, their inference from that statement is, well, therefore they can be wrong, which means sometimes prophets can get it wrong, and that doesn't mean they don't have the gift of prophecy. But that's a pretty big inference and leap. The text doesn't say that. It just says you have to evaluate what the prophets say then they make the inference, well, therefore, that must mean that some of them can get it wrong and sometimes and they can still prophesy, right? But that's a big inference because you're assuming that rather than if they get it wrong, you should just slap the label false prophet on them. Does that make sense? And that, that would be our view. They get it wrong, label is false prophet. It's not, well, that's just our job to kind of sort it out. Sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. The text doesn't say to do that. That's their inference in that passage. Um, second, they argue there's an example of an errant prophecy. They say Agabus in Acts 21 um, gives a prophecy that does not is not fulfilled literally, they say. Third, they say the prophets could be disobeyed. And they also cite a prophecy in Acts 21 um, where Paul is being, some, some people are telling Paul, they're saying, hey, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to get arrested and you'll be in prison, so you shouldn't go. And so the argument becomes, well, Paul goes anyway, so clearly it can't be that this is the same type of prophecies you have in the Old Covenant. Um, so let me, let me just briefly respond to those real quick. Uh, there's no reason to think New Testament prophecy is different than the Old um, for, for only a couple reasons, because that was kind of their first argument was, look, they have to be judged, so that means that they can get it wrong. Um, but Matthew 7.15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. John, in 1 John 4.1, says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. So it's kind of the same thing. Test the spirits, right? Um, whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. My point is, we're given these same warnings. Yes, I, I agree with that. But my question would be, how in the world would you discern what a false prophet is? Because notice it doesn't just say, watch out for when prophets sometimes get it wrong. It doesn't say that. The text says, many false prophets have gone out. You have, in other words, the command basically is identify a false prophet as a false prophet. It's not discern when the prophet sometimes gets it right and sometimes gets it wrong. I guess what I'm saying is this sounds an awful lot like Deuteronomy to me but the new covenant version of it. We don't stone them, but there'd be church discipline or something, right? If they could persist in false prophecy. 
Um, so I think that's, that's um, pretty helpful. The other thing I, I would point out too about just kind of as a side note as to why I don't think we could see it as different, because that was the main issue was, you know, we have to discern, and I think that answers the discernment question. But, um, you know, in Acts chapter 2, Joel says in this new covenant, and he talks about, he, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2, they quote Joel saying, your sons and daughters will prophesy. In other words, the new covenant has come in. Uh, we're seeing the beginnings of the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. What does Joel have in mind when he writes, they're going to prophesy? It's got to be the Old Testament version of prophecy. Joel's not thinking there's going to be a version of prophecy that they're going to have that's going to be different where sometimes they're going to get it right and sometimes they're going to get it wrong. So even when it speaks of it in Joel coming into the, the inauguration of the kingdom, that seems to be, it's got to be Old Testament style prophecy. Um, okay. The, the other issues I'm going to briefly say, go over is, uh, did Agabus give inaccurate prophecy regarding Paul in Acts 21? I would argue no. Um, Acts 28, 17, Paul refers back to this after having went through this, this situation Agabus describes uh, several chapters earlier, and he uses the same word to say, I was delivered over to the Romans, which is the same word that Agabus uses. Now, Agabus certainly is using figurative language as he's describing it, as all the prophets would do in the Old Testament, when they're like acting out things that are happening. Like, no one's thinking like, you know, literally like this little thing you built here is, is the reality. We understand that that's a picture, but the, but the reality of what that pictures is going to happen. And I think that's what you see happening with Paul. The reality that Agabus was picturing through his figurative actions with the belt and tying up his hands, that actually, I mean, Paul does get bound and arrested. That happens, right? Yes? Maybe I'm missing it. I don't see that that's a proof that it's, that Agabus was not prophesying correctly. Right. That Paul didn't, he heard it, he didn't accept it. He, he went on his own way. Right. Yeah, so you're about the prophecy was accurate. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So even so then the next point is they're saying Paul Paul does Paul disobey when the spirit says don't go to Jerusalem, right? But the issue is um, I think the answer to that is they're right in saying Paul's going to be arrested. Paul had even said that before. The spirit testified the chapter before. He says, "Spirit testifies to me everywhere I go I'm going to face trials, persecutions, I'm going to end up in jail. That's what's coming." Right? I think I think what's happening in Acts 21 is of course there's a desire humanly speaking, they say, this is what's going to happen, you're going to get arrested. Then they go on to make an inference, well, we don't think you should go then. I don't think that's part of the prophecy. I think that's them just saying their inference from that, and Paul's basically saying, no, that's not what the Spirit said is going to happen, right? So, yeah. I mean, yeah, the text does not put in, the prophecy from Agabus does not include anything about what he ought to do. Mm -hmm. Paul says, you're breaking my heart. That's right, yep. Because they want him to not go. Yes. The prophecy says this is going to happen, which lines up with exactly what Paul's been saying. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. So when you, re when you read the, like the Ephesian elders in that passage, yeah, they're saying you're breaking my, he says you're breaking my heart, telling me not to go. Uh, but that doesn't mean the prophecy was wrong or that Paul's disobeying the prophecy. It just means they don't want to go because they don't want to be arrested. He, and he understands that, but he's saying, look, I got to do what the spirit, where the Spirit is leading me, right? I got to go. Okay, um, we could spend a lot more time on that. I'm sure a lot has been written on that, but... Um, I think it's only fair to, I just want to point that out, that they, they do have passages they look at besides the one I showed you in 1 Corinthians 14. Let's talk about tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Um, turn to Acts chapter 2. Um, we are going to be back in 1 Corinthians 14, though, in a minute as well, so if that helps you to know that ahead of time. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read some verses out of Acts chapter 2. I want you to tell me what the gift of tongues is according to Acts chapter 2. 
because we're going we're gonna to define it first. Again, that's our issue is definitions. So Acts chapter 2, we have the day of Pentecost has arrived in verse 1. The people were there. The Spirit descends. Uh, verse 4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Um, so tongues, by the way, is just a way of, well, let me just read it because otherwise I'm going to give you the answer here. Verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So just note there's people from every nation under heaven. Um, being represented here. Verse 6, And at the sound, uh, the multitude came together, so they hear the rushing wind when the Spirit descends, and they were bewildered because, why? Each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? People from all nations, they're hearing people speak, and, and it says their language is there, and their question is, aren't these people Galileans? They're from a particular small location. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians, Medes, and it goes on, lists a bunch of different um, places, languages, ethnicities. Um, look down at verse 11. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Okay, so in Acts chapter 2, what are tongues? Now I understand there's a question when we get to 1 Corinthians 14, but I'm asking in Acts chapter 2, what are tongues? Well, there are no languages, but in this case, I think that, that what's being poured out is the gift of interpretation. Okay. We don't, I mean, I, I could be wrong about that. Yeah. Hearing each apostle separately speak at different times in one of these languages. Yeah. But it sounds to me more like what's being poured out is the gift of understanding. Yeah. Which is interpretation on all the people. Yeah, yeah. That's what it sounds like. Okay, yeah. I, I think the, the one thing I would say about that is it talks about as the Spirit gave, it says they were, uh, uh, be, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So I do think it, I think it's speaking, but that, that you're, but other people hold that view. So, I mean, there are commentators who are going to say that. Um, so, but, but what's the issue though? At least we know, but I still think even what you're saying gets to the point of there's a language, a human language, right? That's being spoken and I think interpreted because we see the gift of interpretation come out more clearly even in 1 Corinthians 14. But right here, it uses words like in our native language, right? And, and so, th so, there, so we're talking language. We're not talking um, sounds that are not a human language. I mean, we, you guys see that in Acts chapter 2, right? That's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. Okay, so... Um, yeah, so we see these, these languages, and, and we see some of the reason for the gift, one, at least here in Acts chapter 2. I think there are probably other reasons, but one in Acts chapter 2 is they're telling in our own tongues, verses verse 11, the mighty works of God. Um, so there's kind of a, hey, so, something is here now, right? This, this, the new covenant has arrived. Um, this is kind of what we, we were seeing hints of in the old covenant. Um, pay attention, people, right? And, and um, yeah, there's, mul there's probably multiple things going on here, but. I think it's also a reply. Reciprocal. There's a speaker and hear, mm -hmm. and so the gift of tongues has to have both sides of the communication process. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the gift of tongues is intended to have both sides of the communication process. It's not intended to just be someone speaking and someone not understanding. And that's what you're going to see. The issue is in First Corinthians 14 when Paul deals with it. And, and so one of the things that the, the continuations point to is they say, look, in 1 Corinthians 14, people are speaking in tongues, and, he, and Paul says in, in verse 2, 
and, and you, you're not understanding what they're saying. So, so they point to that and they say, look, so tongues then is not known languages. It, can, it is, but it can also be something that's not a known language and not understood language. But what is the difference? The difference is in Acts chapter two, there are people with all these different languages. They don't need a specific interpreter because they can understand it. In 1 Corinthians 14, these guys all are speaking the same language and the guy who starts speaking in tongues, no one can understand him unless it's interpreted. So the issue is tongues are meant to, in both passages, tongues are meant to be understood and because, because that's what Paul's whole point in 1 Corinthians 14 is. It does you no good if I say a bunch of stuff and you don't know what I'm saying. It does not build up the church. You can't say amen to what I'm saying. You're not encouraged. You're not exhorted. You're not corrected. You, and he says, if there's no understanding, what's the point? And we're going to look at that in a second. But, okay, so that's a very good point. Um, Continuationist view, I guess I kind of jumped ahead of myself, but uh, Wayne Grudem again says, it seems therefore that at times speaking in tongues may involve speech in actual human languages. That's, That's what I'm saying. You see that in Acts 2. So he agrees with that. Sometimes even languages that are understood by those who hear. But at other times, and Paul assumes that this will ordinarily be the case, the speech will be in a language that, quote, no one understands 1 Corinthians 14 2. So 1 Corinthians 14, look at that real quick. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is dealing with the issue of spiritual gifts. You remember part of the issue is they all want these flashy gifts, right? Paul's point though is not to deny that there are gifts of prophecy and tongues at this point in redemptive history. I don't think that's his main point right here, Um, but I think his point is you have to, these gifts have to be done as the way God's given them. You can't just make up your own version of it because you're competing to look like you're more flashy than the guy next to you, right? Um, So he talks about pursue love, uh, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Okay, if that was the only verse you had on this issue of tongues, you could say, well, see, Tongues can also be or are this thing where no one understands it. But he's rebuking them for talking in ways that no one understands. I mean, keep reading. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself, builds up himself. Okay, is that an uh, assessment of, hey, this is right or wrong? Why? I'm not making that up. I'm, I, when I, if I say that's wrong, it's not just because I don't like that gift and I have a problem. Paul has said in 1 Corinthians 12, what is the point of spiritual gifts? Edifying, building up the body. If it's not building up the body, there's a problem. He's correcting them, right? Um, But the one who speaks prophecies builds up the church. Well, why? Because they can understand it. I think that's his point, right? When you speak in prophecies, you're not speaking a different language. You're speaking the revelation of God, and you're speaking in language they can understand. Now, I want all of you to speak in tongues. So, so Paul, at this point, he's not opposed to genuine use of, of tongues, I don't think. Uh, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets. Again, the point is the understandability of it. That you can comprehend what's being said. Why? So that the church may be built up. There's our point again, right? Okay. Um, so what's the difference, though? I think the difference is in Acts chapter 2, um, the reason you didn't have to have interpretation is because you already had people of different languages there. They don't need an interpreter when they start hearing Galileans speak in Persian if they are from Persia or Iran or whatever. I guess it wasn't called Iran back. It's probably been called Persia. So they're there, right? So, um, but in, in 1 Corinthians, why does he say you, you, know, you have to have an interpreter? It's not because we're talking about a different gift. 
It's because the context is different. You have all these Corinthians, and while some of them may be multilingual, these apparently you've got folks speaking in tongues where no one in the congregation knows what it is, assuming they're rightly exercising the gift of tongues. I think you also have people who are saying they have the gift of tongues, but they're just babbling. I think both those things are happening in 1 Corinthians, right? Um, so there's, there's rebuke, but there's also, hey, if you're going to use the gift, it's got to be used like it actually exists. You gotta, the gift is what it is. You can't change it. Yeah. Yeah, um, there's something I see in Acts um, chapter 2 when in the first place tongues came into picture in the Bible. Yeah. Um, and I think God had a purpose for that context. Yeah. Because there, um, there, there was a lot of contention. People did not understand what the church was about. Yeah. And God needed to create an attention to what was happening in the midst of the disciples that we planned. Yeah. So I think it's for that context that there was a, a part of understanding to what people that's right. Their language. I, I, I think it may not completely join to build all um, the, meaning, the meaning of tongues in that picture. I think that was to a, to a purpose. Right. To understand that there was something unique going on there. Right. The garden of the believers was for a purpose. And that um, the fact that it could hear. Yep. The says that these were unlearned men. They had not learned those languages in the past. That's right. That's right. It brings to an idea, the, the picture that God was intentional about doing something. Yep. For those people to hear that um, um, something something unique was happening. Uh, if, you, if you read again in Acts, there was a place where Paul had met disciples of John, I think, and he prayed for them, and the scripture says that they received the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues. That's right. But they didn't mention that people could hear their language. Yep. So I think that the context might add to some meaning to, like, to understand what was, yeah. what was happening. Right. Yeah, so, so yeah, so the Acts, Acts has a significant redemptive role as to why tongues happen in Acts, right? Um, but I, but I, I would say the gift itself doesn't change in the Corinthian church. Now, you might say there are different things that are happening, because Paul does talk about, you know, if an unbeliever comes in and they hear you talking in tongues, they're going to think you're crazy. So there, there's different things going on there. Um, but no, I, I think that's, that's, that's a valid point. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the gift... Has, has not changed, even though the context has. Look at, look at verses 6 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 14. Just to make this more clear that we're talking about the same thing. It's known languages. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching? And look at the example he gives. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So, with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible... How will anyone know what is said? You see, his point there is it has to be understandable. It has to be a human language that can be understood. He says even a bugle, which does not have like the intended communications the way humans think, like if you, if, if you say, hey, ahead of time, guys, when I blow the bugle this way, that means like battle is coming, get ready. Well, you got to blow it that way if you intend for them to understand it, Right? And keep and look and so this to me makes it crystal clear. Look at verse ten. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. Are tongues you speaking in the spirit that does not have a real meaning, but you just feel like you're connected to God when you do it? That's not what is happening, even in First Corinthians fourteen. I mean, he's very clear. We're talking about languages, and they have meaning to them. The way a language has meaning, not meaning the way you like you maybe feel like you see a painting and you have feelings and there's still some sort of meaning. We're not talking about that type of meaning. We're talking about intelligibility. 
right? Mentally grasping the prophecy or the encouragement or the, the, the preaching. That's what we're talking about. So I, th- I think that is pretty clear when we start talking about what's going on in First uh, Corinthians. Oh yeah, verse 11. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So uh, I don't think we see this version of tongues being exercised today. Um, I think the, the claim, and we even saw it with Grudem, is really that we're having these ecstatic utterances that have no dis- discernible linguistic pattern. Um, perhaps a private prayer language, which again, uh, Paul does mention something about you know, fine, you, if you pray in tongues, you know, don't, don't bring that into the church if you don't have an interpreter. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a, hey, this is really what tongues are argument. I think he's just saying in the church, the, that's not the way this gift is exercised. And again, the whole context has been the point of, of all the gifts is to build up the body. It's not just you individually in your own walk with the Lord. Though certainly when you exercise your gift, yeah, I mean, it does, you're part of the body. It builds you up too. That's true. But it's not just me. It's got to benefit the body. All right, uh, we need to, to move into miracles and healing. So miracles and healing overlap. Um, miracles uh, is uh, things like healing of, um, sorry, uh, miracles are things like exorcisms, uh, nature miracles, provision, protection thing, miracles. Healing would be miraculous healing of things like blindness, cancer, deafness, epilepsy, um, things like that. The point is, these are extraordinary, not ordinary things. Does God heal? yes. God can do that in extraordinary ways. He can do it in ordinary ways. But this is a gift of extraordinary ability to heal somebody through a person. Not, not God bringing healing. I mean, certainly God can bring healing anytime he wants. We're talking, does a person have the gift where they can go and they can find someone sitting on the ground who's been lame from birth and say, get up and walk like Paul uh, Peter does in uh, Acts, Right? Or you, you have a young man who falls because Paul's sermon went too long and he dies. And Paul goes and give, revives that young man. That, that's, those, those are the miracles and healings we're talking about. Okay, we're, we're, So um, I guess I'm kind of already giving it away. I think that's the definition. But the continuationists argue that a person can have a gift to heal every so often um, and that it really is more of a ministry of prayer that is uh, you tend to have God answer more of your prayers for healing than other people do. So Wayne Grudem, those with gifts of healing uh, will be those people who find that their prayers for healing are answered more frequently and more thoroughly than others. When that becomes evident, a church should be wise enough to encourage them in this ministry, this gift, and give them more opportunities to pray for others who are ill. Okay, um, I think one issue we have with that definition is, is this really simply an occasional thing where, you know, I mean, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, and, and perhaps it's pretty rare that it happens. Um, I mean, it seems difficult to speak of the gift of healing if it's very sporadic. In what sense does someone have a gift of healing? If it's like one time you prayed for someone and it seems like they were healed in, in response to that, and you haven't done it again since then. Do you have the gift of healing? Do you, I mean, if it was that sporadic, it's not very clear that you have the gift. Does that make sense? So I think that's one issue we run into. Uh, the other thing is, you know, as the New Testament gets closer to the end of being written, uh, it does seem like the gift is dying out. And that is pun intended, right? The gift is dying out as you move that direction. Um, we see Paul uh, in 2 Timothy 4.20. Uh, he leaves one of his co-laborers, Troph- Trophimus, I think. Uh, he's, he's ill, so ill that he can't continue on the trip. Paul has to continue. Paul does not heal him, right? Paul leaves him there. 
Now, this is an inference. I'll grant you that. The text does not explicitly say this. But Paul certainly did heal people earlier in his ministry. And here at the very end of his ministry in 2 Timothy, this is the last epistle he writes before he is dead, he dies. He, does, he doesn't heal this guy. Now, again, that's an inference. I'm not, I, that would not be the strongest point for this case. But there is, somehow, we have to, what's going on there? And I think it fits with, okay, it seems like as the New Testament is coming to its completion, so, so again, this is kind of a bigger view. What's the purpose of these gifts? Well, it's to authenticate the apostolic message and ministry. And I would say even, it wasn't just the apostles that could do this maybe early on, but even there, it was the gospel's brand new. The kingdom has just come on the scene in this new way, and God is authenticating this is truly good news. This is truly the gospel of God. And yes, most of that happens through the apostles, but I do think there were other people that could have functioned as, as um, prophets or um, you know, healings and other things like that. So, yeah. In this video, I think it's a misapplication. Um, sometimes a healer will blame the person they're trying to heal. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so it, it feels askew yeah. in terms of the gift of healing is blocked. Right. The belief in the person. That's right. So sometimes the way we, we explain what, why, why this person wasn't, this person has the gift of healing, they weren't able to heal you because you lacked faith, right? Yeah. That's right. Um, Tom, Tom Schreiner, I think, is helpful. He writes this. If the signs and wonders of the apostles have returned, we should see the blind receiving their sight, the lame walking, and the dead being raised. God heals today, sometimes dramatically, but the healing of colds, the flu, TMJ, stomach and back problems, and so forth, aren't in the same category as the healings found in the scriptures. If people truly have the gift of healing and miracles today, they need to demonstrate such by performing the kinds of healings and miracles found in the Bible. So again, my point is we keep coming back to definition. How do we define the gift? And I'm saying I don't think the, the continuationist viewpoint defines it biblically. I think what they do is they, they see the words, and then they but they're not seeing exactly what you see in the New Testament filled out, so they give a new definition to it to say that we still have the gift. And I'm saying, I think it's more likely to say the gift isn't given that way anymore. Yeah. So do you think demonic possession is slowed down or not happening? So yeah, interesting. So demonic, uh, so that would fall under miracles, being able to cast out demons, I think. Okay, think about it this way. The only time you see significant demonic possession issues is when Jesus comes on the scene. I'm not saying it didn't happen before that, and I'm not saying it doesn't happen today. I think both those are true. I think, though, the point is, when the king of kings shows up to bring in his kingdom, the forces of darkness are like, it's on. I mean, war is here. We're, we're going all out, right? I think something very unique happening. Now, can people still be demon-possessed? I think that's true. You never have a command, though, in the New Testament to cast demons out of one another. That's a little bit, again, that's kind of an argument from silence, but still, I think it, it's a little helpful. Um, now, can God um, free someone from that? Yes. I just don't think someone has the gift of, I go around and I cast out demons. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's a good question. All right, well, um, yeah, one more thing, Jim, and then I'm going to wrap us up. Right. To be fair, um, Peter's mother-in-law yeah. got healed of a, of a really bad disease. Yeah. She was healed of a demon. That's right. So, so does it include smaller things, too? Sure. Yes. That's right. I, th I think that's helpful. But I, I think the point is, this, what happens is the continuationists, they tend to fall into categories of either the gift of healing is here, but it's like I, have the, I, I can heal people of lower back pain or things like that, that you just can't verify it. We should not be scared to say, if you have the gift of healing, do something that we can verify. 
Because that seems to be what happens in the New Testament. That's not doubt to say we need to be able to verify that you have the gift, right? So if we, if we could go through the book of Acts and I could, we could look at passage after passage where there's a miraculous healing that goes on and everyone is like, wow. And then what ends up happening is they're saying, this must be the message of God. That's basically what you see. So again, what's the reason for it is to show this message really is the good news of God. Well, now when we have it inscripturated, I think we go and we say this, and we point back to history and we say, look at Jesus risen from the dead, and you know, we point to those things. But initially, I think the reason God gives it is to point to these things. Um, so yes, that's, that's good. Um, okay, I'm gonna make really quickly, so in like less than five minutes. Well, technically we need to end now, but we're not going to because I'm gonna make the case for cessationism a little. So I think I've already made it in the details. I wanna give you big picture though. Ephesians 2 is very helpful. So my first argument would be the role of apostle and prophet. They were foundational roles. Ephesians 2 says in verse uh, 19, yeah. Can you wait to do this next week? Uh, yes. This is really, I think it's really helpful. I mean, Amen. Okay. We, yeah, that's a good idea. We'll do that. Yeah, we're going to fly, yeah, because we really would fly through this pretty quick. All right. That's, uh, thank you for making that suggestion. And the rest of you can thank Rod later for, for that suggestion. I know you all were like, please, Please don't do this right now. All right, let me, go, uh, let me go ahead and pray for us real quick. God, thank you so much uh, for your word. Um, God, we, uh, we certainly don't want to be um, uncharitable or unkind. We, all of us probably have friends uh, that uh, hold that these gifts are out there. God, help us not to be prideful. Um, help us not to be um, uh, angry or even just uh, aggressive in our approach to these friends. Help us to be wise, though, and discerning, God, where there are uh, those who really are, they are false prophets, and uh, they are uh, affirming things um, in ways that are um, uh, wolves in sheep clothing. Would you help us to be, stand against that firmly and with courage? And when we deal with friends, help us to, to be loving, kind, and speak the truth in love, um, and um, to be uh, even patient with one another, God, where we may hold different views or slightly different views. But God, our greatest desire is that we would be... Um, believing what you say, uh, not, not just what we think you should say or, or think should be there, God. And I, I pray that for me as well. I don't want to be locked into this just because of um, past experience or other things, but I, I want to be biblical. I know we all do. Uh, so would you give us uh, your grace uh, that we may um, have discernment, have wisdom, maintain the unity of the Spirit, and uh, glorify you by positively exercising all the gifts that uh, your Spirit uh, genuinely gives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.